right, all right. What's going on, guys? How about this weather? That's good, right? Whole bunch of short sleeves out there. I love that. Um, yeah, man, I'm excited to be here. Excited to just kind of continue to carry us along in our series on Romans. Uh, I, I broke it down to math, um, and we have, this is our 22nd week in the book of Romans. Um, so we've been going at it. We took a little break in December, but we've been going at this bad boy since August. Um, and praise God for giving us just the endurance to continue going. There's so much to break down and uh, so much theology and practical living. So um, I'm, I'm going to give you guys a little rundown in case you've missed the, uh, the first 21 weeks or you've missed here or there. This is kind of the point to where we're at now. And so for the first 17 weeks, we were in Romans chapter 1 through 11. And in chapters 1 through 11, it's Paul's uh, explanation, his, his really broad and, and detailed dissection of the gospel. And the gospel that tells us that although we deserve judgment for the sins that we have committed against God, that we can be forgiven because Jesus took our place on the cross, took that judgment for us. So now salvation is available to anyone who would repent from their sin and put their faith in Christ. And we see this uh, explained in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now offer is to everyone. So that was 11 chapters, 17 weeks, a long time. But then we landed in chapter 12. And in Romans chapter 12, at the very beginning, it tells us, therefore, it's the first word of, of the chapter is therefore. So since you've believed the gospel and you are a new creation, therefore present your bodies as living sacrifices, and do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so we begin to unpack what that looks like, what is the response to belief in the gospel, that faith comes with action. And so later in Romans 12, we saw Kyle and Grant break what it looks like uh, for, for just living with each other and interacting with each other. What does that look like as Christians? And then last week, in the beginning of Romans 13, Grant broke down how do Christians respond to the government and to the authorities, and how do we obey them and glorify God that way. And then this week we come to the end of chapter 13, and we're going to see how really one command that God gives us encapsulates all that he has asked us to do. So go ahead and pray with me before we dive into God's word. God, we, we love you. Lord, we want to glorify you, and we want to praise you and worship you in everything we do. So, um, God, just let us do that. Holy Spirit, give us everything we need to listen, to be open to whatever you want to tell us today. God, just speak your words through me. Let it all be about you and for you and to your glory. And Lord, let us leave this place loving Jesus more than we did when we came in, and God, just wanting to serve you more. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if you want to open your Bibles or it'll be up on the screen, we're actually going to start in verse 7. So this is the last verse that Grant left out on uh, last week. So here we go. Verse 7. Give to everyone what you owe them. If, if, if you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And whatever other command there may be are summed up by this one command. 
Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality or debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. All right, so as you guys could tell, the big theme of this section of scripture is just the supremacy of love. And, and oftentimes when we talk about love in, in the world today, I can't help but feel like nobody is on the same page. Nobody understands it. Um, it you know, in other languages, there are different words for different types of love. We'll, get, we'll look at that in a second. But in English, we have one word for love, and it means a hundred different things. So for example, if I say, I, I love the Bengals, um, which is true. I love my friends, which is true. I love my wife, which is true. And I love God, which is true. Those all kind of have different connotations to them, and they don't necessarily mean the same thing, even though I'm using the same word. And so typically, when we think about love, we think about romantic love. But even that can be complex. Um, I have to admit to you guys, I'm confessing now, I, I found myself watching The Bachelor uh, a couple weeks ago. Um, if you do it too, don't worry, We're, it's a safe space here. Um, and, and I found out that language of how they talk about love and how they tell each other that they love each other, right? So like first, it's, they'll, say, they'll say, man, I think I might be possibly falling in love with this person. And that's like a big deal, right? You get that after a while. Um, and then the next level is that they say, I am falling in love with you. And again, that's, that's a big deal. That's a big shebang, right? And then the final boss level is when you just say, I love you or I am in love with you, right? And so, um, listen, you guys might do this. I, I'm not here to judge you. I just don't get it. Uh, it doesn't quite make sense to me. And I think I'm just trying to explain that we don't really know in this world sometimes what it, even know, or what it means when we say love. And unfortunately, it's not just all fun and games um, there are also times where people say they are being loving when they really aren't. Um, this is maybe more, uh, again, of a silly example, but it, it tells a larger story. Do we have any Hamilton fans in here? Yeah, there you go. I love Hamilton. I think it's awesome. Me and my wife got to see it a few months back. It was really cool. Um, so in the musical, there's this song called You'll Be Back. All right, and uh, everybody loves King George. And in this song, King George is kind of talking to the colonies about how they no longer want to be under his rule. And uh, these are a few of the lines that are in the song. He says, when push comes to shove, I will send a fully armed battalion to remind you of my love. Okay, and then the last verse is, again, when push comes to shove, I will kill your friends and family to remind you of my love. I would argue that killing your friends and family is not a good way to show people that you love them. Um, and again, goofy example, I get it, but it tells the larger story here that the world has created a definition of love that kind of lets us do whatever we want as long as we say we're doing it out of love. Love is like the ultimate excuse for doing anything that you want. But the reality is, is that love 
that is misplaced is not love. Maybe another way of saying this is that love in the wrong context is not love. I think this is why we see that adultery is the opposite of love. It's not loving. You know, even if, even if a guy or girl says, you know, I know that this person, I know that, that this woman has a husband, um, but I just love her and she loves me. And so we should be together, right? That, that, doesn't, that you can't argue with love. Um, no, that doesn't make it right. The type of love that exists between a husband and a wife is an exclusive type of love. It's not to be shared with others. This is also one of the problems with homosexuality. I remember when the LGBT movement was regained in 2015, uh, kind of the, the hashtag that was being used is hashtag love is love. Just love is love. Just let it be. And that at that time, a lot of Christians were kind of confused because we said, well, you know, I know that the Bible says this is outside of God's design. The Bible says this isn't right. But how do I argue with someone who says, I just want to love? How do I argue with, with what people are calling love? The issue is, is that the love, that adultery, and homosexuality, and things of these nature begin or attempt to engage in is not love at all. It's a misplaced, misguided, out-of-context type of love, which means it's not love. And the reason for this is that God, who is not only the creator of the universe— but also the standard of morality, he defines love. He defines what love is. So when it comes to the type of marital love that we talk about, he defines what that looks like. When it comes to the type of love that we're going to talk about here in a second with loving God and loving others, he define, defines what that looks like. So any display of love that is contrary to God's standard and design is not love. So I go through all this and I say all this just so we can all be on the same page as we jump into this text about love. These are going to be kind of the two simple guiding principles that we're going to be working on when we try to interpret what is love. The first is that in order to understand what love is, we have to understand who God is. And next is that in order to understand how to love, we have to understand how God loves. And so as we break down this passage, we're going to be looking at it from God's perspective only. Leave whatever you think you know about love at the door. And in this section, I see four areas of instruction on love. The first is what kind of love. We just talked about different kinds of love. We're going we're gonna to figure out what kind of love is God calling us to. Who should we love? Why should we love? And how should we love? All right, we're going to get right into it. Number one, what kind of love is this passage in particular talking about? And many of you may know that in the Greek, unlike English, there are multiple words for love. All right, we just talked about a romantic type of love. That would be the word eros, but that's not what we're dealing with right here. In the original language for this text, the word that Paul uses for love is agape. And I assume most, some of you have heard that word before. Agape love is the type of love that is most commonly referred to in the Bible by a long shot. And that's because it's the best kind of love that represents who God is and how God loves. 
Agape love cannot be known outside of knowing God. That's important. This type of love cannot be known outside of knowing God. This love is more than just an action. Actually, rather, it's maybe a posture. It's a faithful and willful commitment to the object of your love. And it doesn't seek selfish gain, and it's not based on conditional actions. In, in 1 John chapter 4, it says, God is love. So it uses this word, agape, to describe God is love. And again, this means more than God just doing an action of love. Rather, it means that love is God's very nature. This type of unconditional, self-sacrificing love is God's very nature. This is the type of love displayed by Christ when he went to the cross for us. And this is the type of love that Paul's talking about, all right? So we're on the same page there. So who should we love? Who do we love with this type of love? Verse 9 calls us to love our neighbors. And if you didn't grow up in church, you didn't grow up around the Bible, it might be confusing as to why Paul is telling people to just love people who live beside him and across the street from him. But that's not how the Bible explain, or, uh, talks about who our neighbors are. When the Bible says your neighbors, it means anyone who you might come into contact with or is around you regularly, even the person you meet on the street randomly, just anybody around us is your neighbor, is someone who we have the opportunity to love. And so it's not just your friends, but it's also the people that maybe you don't even like them, the people that kind of annoy you or get on your nerves. We see it's really easy to love our friends. It's really easy to love those who love you. But I want you guys to think, like, who is that person in your life who maybe you have trouble loving for whatever reason? I mean, we make a lot of excuses as to not to love people. We say it's just too hard, it's not worth it, they're too difficult of a person. They don't love me well, why should I love them well? Like, I, I'm getting, or I'm giving in the relationship more than I'm getting. We make a ton of excuses, but the love that God calls us to has no room for these types of excuses. It does not discriminate. It just loves everyone regardless of whether or not they deserve it. Godly love does not care who gets more out of the deal. And we see this as the Bible instructs us to bless and pray for those who persecute you. Bless and pray for those who persecute you. When Jesus told his disciples to pray for those who persecute you, I think we need to understand even just like the severity that what was about to happen to the disciples. The disciples would soon turn into apostles and they would go and they would be persecuted far more than I'm sure any of us have ever or will ever be persecuted. Beaten, mocked, and eventually most of them killed for their faith. And Jesus' response to them is to pray for those people, to bless those people, to love those people. The most popular verse in the Bible, John 3, 16, explains this kind of well about how Jesus did this. It says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And we have a great example to follow in Jesus. Jesus showed his love for, for everybody that he interacted with, love for his neighbors in many ways, by just by healing them. That's a good way to love people. By being their friend, by just eating with them, by like caring for the least of these, those are all good. But the greatest example of his love was when he died for everyone there and everyone 
for all eternity, died on the cross for our sins while we were still sinners. We had nothing to offer God, but he died for us when we had nothing to offer him, when we were still his enemies. And so if Jesus can show us such great love while we were still his enemies, while we had nothing to offer him, surely we can be compelled by that love to love others who also treat us wrong. And so now we ask, why do we love? And of course, we, we can kind of answer this question very quickly. You know, we love because God first loved us, right? That's in the Bible. Um, I'm speaking specifically in this passage. Why is Paul urging people with, with such urgency to love? Here's what it says in verse 11. And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber. Because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Um, Paul kind of points out the reality that I'm beginning to live every birthday. Uh, every birthday, I kind of have to do the math and figure out how old I am now. Um, and then, you know, I look at my watch and I hold my back and I'm like, whoo, you know, I'm getting old, huh? Um, I, I, I assume maybe some of you guys are going through that right now as you're getting new responsibilities. Maybe you're getting married, getting the, getting the big job or whatever, having kids. Um, the reality is, is that time is going by fast, right? We always look at our lives, and, and the more we live, uh, the, the more it seems like time just goes by fast. And unfortunately, this is kind of just the reality of living on a sinful planet, that our time here is limited, and we're not guaranteed another second past what we already have, but uh, even if we get our fullest life, I think the average lifespan uh, of people right now is like 72 years old. Um, so we don't get that long here. And what Paul wants us to take note of is that every day we are getting closer and closer to being with Christ. We're getting closer and closer to no longer being on this earth. And that's great, right? We look forward to that. We rejoice in that. That's like a huge reason that we just, we praise God and we rejoice. But just because we're getting closer to that point doesn't mean that we just sit and idle, and we just get to coast through this life like nothing else matters. Paul uses this analogy to wake up from your slumber. Stop sleeping in the midst of a life to where we're called to go love people and to serve people and to preach the gospel. To wake up from your slumber. I mean, I, I had an experience this week where uh, middle of the week had been a long day already. I'm tired. I walk into the apartment, and I'm like, you know what? Take a 15-minute power nap. And, uh, and then I'll get back to work, right? Still got a lot of work to do. Naturally, two to three hours later, I wake up, and I'm, like, freaking out. Um, I'm like, oh, shoot, man, I had so much, you know, so much planned, so much to do, wasted all this time. That's kind of how I imagine uh, this situation being of, like, man, don't get to the end of your life. Don't get to the end of whatever time God has for you here and realize I just sleptwalked through my entire life. I just wasted this gift that God has given me in this life to love others, to preach the gospel, to be on mission for God. And if, you, and if we are in a spiritual slumber, we're going uh, through the motions, not worried about being intentional, we, we are at risk of doing this. This will happen to us if we're not awake and if we're not alert. Because the love that God calls us to will not happen by accident. We're not just going to trip and fall to the kind of radical, different from the world that God is calling us to here. It's not easy. 
But we're only going to follow this command if we're actively seeking out opportunities. If we're continually submitting to the Lord and seeking out how can I love others? How can I continue to, like Sean Dale was saying, man, die to myself and, and put on Christ. So let's wake up to the need for the world to know the gospel. Let's wake up to that need. Wake up to the needs of others around us. Let's wake up to God's will for our lives. Be attentive on that. Don't sleepwalk through your life just because you got your get out of hell free card. So finally we get to kind of the final part here where it all comes together. How do we love? How do we love? And I want to reread the final part of the chapter to break this down. It says, the night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not carousing and in drunkenness, not in sexual immorality morality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. And so we see here how Paul lists kind of three different pairs of sins that we're supposed to avoid as Christians. It will help us love each other better, uh, love God better, carousing and drunkenness, sexual immorality and debauchery, and dissension and jealousy. And all three of those things, right, we could probably talk about all three of them extensively. I want to focus on the last two, the, the last pair, dissension and jealousy. Because I really believe that the enemy is going to try to attack the church, attack God's body through our relationships. There might be other ways, but I really think that's the primary way that he's going to try to attack us and to cause, and to cause quarreling and dissension within the body and, and to make us disunified is by attacking our relationships. And so it's easy for us to have these things become a part of our life. I mean, I even see it with myself, man, like one, one comment that someone makes set me off, one text that I take out of context, or one funny face that someone makes at something I say. It's like, we really have surprisingly little amount of patience for others, and then expect others to have so much patience for us. We live by that double standard, and it's easy for us. And the root of this is our own pride. And we know that pride and love cannot coexist. One is going to win. So sometimes our desires to be liked or highly praised, they'll lead us to jealousy of others. Our desire for people to see us a certain way will lead us, man, I, w I wish they saw me like they saw that guy. Even about like Jesus-related things, right? Like this isn't just school or work. Like even, man, I wish... I really wish I could evangelize like that guy or I could, I could teach like that guy or disciple like that, that girl. Like, We fall into this pit of jealousy because we, we want these things and we, it turns into a pride. It's not bad to want them, but it turns into a pride when we begin to get jealous over people and not just thankful for what the Lord has given us. And our need for honor and respect brings us to just fighting over dumb stuff that frankly doesn't matter. I mean, how often, again, I, I can only speak from my life. I'm going to assume you guys maybe agree and see it in your lives. Like, how often do we just fight over dumb stuff that does not matter, has no bearing on, like, two seconds ahead, let alone eternity? So often. And like we just went over, we don't have 
the time to be fighting over stuff like that is not worth our time. We got things to do. And God has called us out of that. He has called us as new creations in Christ, like this verse says, to put away our old deeds of darkness. We do not belong to that anymore. And so I want to quickly look at a few examples in Scripture of how we can put away pride and to love each other well. And maybe these are a little bit new, unique situations. There's a, a ton of uh, examples that we could go into, but the first is going to be out of 1 Corinthians 6. All right, and so some context here. Um, in, in Corinth, the church that Paul is writing to, they were suing each other um, over what Paul calls trivial matters. They, they were taking each other to a secular court. Uh, they were suing each other, getting in these fights, just trying to get back at each other. Um, and this is Paul's response to them. This is his challenge to them. As it is, to have legal disputes against one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. And so in the midst of this group of people who they're all just trying to get back at each other and achieve vengeance on their own and take back what was rightfully theirs, Paul presents this ridiculous idea to the world of why not just be wronged? Why not just be cheated? Why not? What are you losing? And it takes radical humility to look in the face of a brother or sister who has wronged you and just turn the other way and say, you know what, I forgive you. That's okay. I forgive you. But we do this not only because it's good, it's how we should live, it's how we should love others, but we also do it because, like Paul says, we're just as likely to turn back around and wrong our brothers and sisters too. And so when we get on our high horse of, oh, I'm the only one who's doing good, everybody's wronging me, well, maybe we get in this place of pride to where we do feel like we have to take vengeance. But if we understand that I am just as likely to wrong you as you are to wrong me, then we can lay on a foundation of the grace that God has given us to forgive each other. So this example is just two chapters later, in 1 Corinthians 8. This was a messy church. And for the context here, uh, there was an issue where some people within the church and the community, they could eat meat that was being sacrificed to idols, uh, and it did not hurt their conscience. There was nothing inherently wrong with it. Uh, that, the whole explanation may be too much to get into, but just it didn't hurt their conscience, right? And then uh, there were another group of people who they would be offended by that. Like if they saw that or if they did that, they would be sinning in their own conscience. And so there was this trouble, like, what do we do? How do we handle this? What if some people can do this, some people can't do it? This was Paul's response. Now, when you sin like this against brothers and sisters and wound their weak conscience, you are sinning against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother or sister to fall, I will never again eat meat, so that I won't cause my brother or sister to fall. And so again, we see humility and being willing to put away things that we like or we love for the sake of our brothers and sisters to do away with 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 our conveniences and to do away with things that maybe we like just so we don't cause our brother or sister to fall to stumble or maybe sometimes just so they'll be comfortable just so they will feel loved man i can't help but think that this is completely not how the world 
works. I know you guys know that. I know you guys know that the ways of Christ are not the ways of the world, but like, it's radically different. This world does not live by these things that we're talking about. And so I use these two examples because I think they are great examples of us putting others before ourselves, maybe inconveniencing ourselves for the convenience of others. And I want to look at one final example of how to do this, and this is probably my favorite because it talks about Jesus. It's in Philippians chapter 2, and it says this, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, and when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so Jesus is this perfect example of how to love people. If anybody deserved high praise, it was Jesus sitting in heaven. If anybody deserved to to not sacrifice themselves, it was Jesus. But yet he did it. He did it out of love for us. Humbled himself, took it upon himself to love others at his own expense. And so we, we do this, we're able to love because we see the example of Jesus, but also because Jesus has given us the power and the authority to do so. He's given us the power and the authority and the ability to do so. And so when we put our faith in Christ, we receive the Holy Spirit, right? Which gives us the ability to clothe ourselves in Jesus. It gives us the ability to put away the deeds of darkness. We're no longer enslaved by those. And we now have the ability to actually love each other with this kind of agape love that we're talking about that we can only know if we know God. We can do this now. Verse 14 says, do not even think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. There are some other versions that say make no provision for the flesh. And the Bible talks about how the wicked plan out how they might do evil. They plan it out and they think about it. We no longer have to do that. We no longer have to think about how we may do evil. We can reject evil. This is part of being transformed, having our minds renewed, is that we no longer have to think about and be enslaved by sinful desires and by pride. So since we have the Spirit of God who loves us, has shown that love to us, we have all that is necessary to love our neighbors well. And so if the band wants to come up, I'm going to close this out here. Man, may we love our neighbors unconditionally, May we love them with urgency that God and Paul calls us to do it with. And I know we didn't get much into this today, but like may we love the world by preaching the gospel to them foremost, but also just by being people's friends, by caring for people, by serving others. Where we can show the love of Christ to the world. I mean, if we're jerks to the world, Why would they want to believe our gospel? Like, I understand the gospel itself is offensive. But that doesn't mean you get to just be offensive. Love the world. Treating them with respect and care. And sharing the gospel with them. And man, may we love the church. May we love each other. By rejecting bitterness 
and selfishness and anger and quarreling and stupid fights over dumb things. And Romans says, as far as it depends on us, may we be at peace with everybody. As far as it depends on you. It doesn't matter if other people don't want to make peace. As far as it depends on you, be at peace with everyone. And may we live and love humbly for the glory of God and for the good of others around us. All right, so pray with me. Father, we love you. Lord, we just thank you, Lord, for our salvation in Jesus. God, that you've given it to us freely. We don't have to earn it. But God, now that we have it, we get to love you. We get to love others. Father, please guide us in how to do that. Holy Spirit, take out the deeds of darkness in our hearts. Call us to a greater type of love, one that puts others before ourselves. God, because of this love, let us make waves throughout the world of people seeing how we love each other and people seeing how we love the world and that it would ultimately lead to your worship growing and to people coming to you and people putting their faith in Jesus because of this love. God, be with us as we worship. Let it be glorifying and good to your ears. We ask this all in Jesus' name.